You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, Jonathan Nee, who is a professor at Columbia Business School, also co-directs their media and technology program, and is the author of a bunch of books. The most recent book is called The Platform Delusion, Who Wins and Who Loses in the Age of Tech Titans. But Jonathan, you've also written a bunch of other books, one that we were discussing that I'd read many years ago called The Accidental Investment Banker. Also one called Class Clowns, which is about the education industry and Curse of the Mogul, which is a bit about kind of the media industry. Welcome, Jonathan. I'm glad you could make it today. Thank you, Greg. Now, this book, The Platform Delusion, I think you're trying in many ways to puncture some of the, well, the illusions around how different the world is today from the past. Now, I teach courses on strategy. In my core strategy class, I use a lot of old cases, and a lot of the students complain. They're like, why do we have to look at all these old cases? Hasn't the world completely changed? Isn't everything about our parents' generation strategy-related? Can we just toss it into the trash? And I emphasize continuity. But then I also teach these other classes on digital transformation and data science, where I emphasize the world is completely different and everything's changed. And sometimes we emphasize emphasize the continuity, and sometimes we emphasize the discontinuity. And I think in this book, you're primarily at some level emphasizing that there are these timeless principles of strategy that should guide our investment philosophy, right? There's things that you're going to look for, and obviously they're going to manifest themselves differently as technology evolves. But at the end of the day, businesses get their value, right, from profit-generating opportunities, and these come from those things we refer to as competitive advantage, and they have their origins in scale, they have their origins in switching costs and customer lock-in and all the things that we've learned about in business school. Is it a fair description? And if so, why is it that there is so much, I don't know, belief around discontinuity? Why do we want to believe that the world is so completely different? Well, it is in some ways completely different. And I think our job as teachers is to help people understand which parts are different and which parts are the same. So the laws of economics and the laws of strategy, which are quite closely related, do not change, just like the laws of gravity. But what does change and what is fundamental to being smart about strategy is industry structure. And industry structure really drives strategy at the end of the day. And industry structure is extremely dynamic. And the key to being successful, in my view, is to overlay the timeless economic principles on top of the morphing industry structures. And from that, derive sensible optimizing strategies. And it is true that where one is likely to find competitive advantage is driven very much by industry structure. I think another fallacy that often people fall into is the desire to find a single 
all-encompassing source of competitive advantage for a particular situation. In general, look, in life, people love to look for single, all-encompassing explanations because it makes your life easier (laughs) if there was such Mm -hmm. a thing. But rarely is there such a thing. Life is about nuance. Being effective, however, is about knowing where to cut off the nuance and focus on what's most important. But what I would say is for the best franchises, whether they are digital or analog or hybrid, they are never the result of a single source of advantage. They are the result of some multiple mutually reinforcing competitive advantages. And the way that they work together is what makes them so resilient. A single competitive advantage, whether it be scale, whether it be customer captivity, whether it be big data, all by itself, somebody will come after you and it it is not the moat that you imagine. And usually there are multiple ones. It's just that you focus on the one that seems most obvious. Facebook, oh, it's got to be network effects. It's all about network effects. And it is about network effects, but it's about a whole series of other things. And if it were only about network effects, Facebook would never have existed because MySpace would have taken over the world and Facebook would never have been able to exist. And MySpace wouldn't have existed because the two or three that came before it would have taken over the world. The reality is to understand why Facebook took over the world, you need to really think harder about what those mutually reinforcing advantages are and why they were able to be resilient in a way that the ones that came before were not. Yeah. Now, network effects, we're going to talk about them. But even over the course of my teaching, I remember when I started teaching strategy 20 years ago, I'd talk about the inevitable victory of the PC ecosystem compared to Apple. And then, of course, subsequently, I had to talk about the death of Windows and how the dominance disappeared. And I want to get into that. And I want to get into all of the different elements of the platform delusion that you described. But before we even get there, I want to challenge this idea of industry, right? So, In the beginning of a typical strategy class, we'll start off by introducing the Michael Porter framework, and we'll talk about doing industry analysis, and uh, there'll be some difficulties in circumscribing what exactly constitutes an industry, right? So the automotive industry, you know, are trucks included? I don't know, are EVs included? Is tier three suppliers included? Dealers, you know, but a lot of people will say today that it doesn't even make sense to think about an industry, It doesn't even make sense to think of drawing boundaries around industries and that rather we should be talking in terms of ecosystems because everything kind of bleeds into everything. How would you respond to that kind of critique that is basically arguing for the obsolescence of industry analysis? When I hear that, uh, changing one word with a fancy version of the same word, I don't think moves the ball forward an enormous amount. If you want to say ecosystem instead of industry, God bless you, but it's the same thing. In industry, when you do industry analysis, you take into account suppliers, you take into account all of the enabling technologies, you take into account all of those things, which, what do you know, that's what 
an ecosystem is. So I think it is benign that if I want to wear clothes that are appropriate for somebody 30 years younger than me, it's embarrassing, but it's benign. Similarly, if somebody wants to call something an ecosystem instead of an industry, I really don't care. What I do care about, which is sometimes the concept that you just articulated leads into, is the notion that specialization is irrelevant in the current world. These two gentlemen from Harvard wrote a book called uh, Strategy in the Age of AI or something like that. Their view is that because of the prevalence of big data and artificial intelligence in resilient ecosystems, that combined with scale is kind of the magic and network effects is kind of the all-encompassing explanation for advantage in the current world. Their view is because it's just the more data, the better, that it's no longer about vertical specialization. Everything's just a horizontal. And they give the example of, you know, Google's going to go into cars and it's all just one big blob of data and AI. And that's really just nonsense. The reality is that specialization has never been as important as it is in digital environments. And that's true even, frankly, with respect to AI applications. The idea of generalized artificial intelligence is one day there will be some version of that. But in terms of applications that make a real difference, you talk to people have been touting the imminent relevance of AI for 50 years, and it has started to come true as things that one touts eventually, eventually do. But where it has come true overwhelmingly is in vertical applications where you have mm -hmm. deep data sets in for very particular use cases and where smart people ask the right questions to apply those technologies to those data sets. The notion that because the world has become digital, that vertical specialization is no longer relevant is just untrue. And indeed, if you look at the nature of most of the interesting software businesses that have emerged over the last couple of decades in various SaaS applications, they are all overwhelmingly vertical, highly vertical, whether it's in HR or whatever. There, and if this notion were true, they would all just merge together and make one huge blob of SaaS, taking advantage of their data and AI and blah, blah, blah. But that is not the case. And indeed, if it, when two companies that do have SaaS applications in completely different domains, if they were to try to merge just to get bigger and take advantage of more data, I can tell you that the stock market would react appropriately, which is that the stock would go down because they would lose focus and there's no real advantage from that. But still, it's kind of difficult to determine what constitutes an adjacency in today's world. If you look at companies like Salesforce, or ServiceNow or Workday, they're all bumping into each other, right? Because HR and finance and IT, I mean, they're all kind of overlap to some degree. I mean, they, these are kind of artificial distinctions to some degree, right? And it's almost impossible ex ante to determine what the contours of the firm would be, right? So if in China, you have payments with retail. In the U.S., you don't. In China, you have messaging with payments. And in the U.S., you don't. So 
it doesn't seem like the adjacencies are like who would have predicted that say Amazon would be in cloud services? Who would have predicted that Google would be in cars? It is difficult to predict, right? What constitutes an adjacency? The fact that they're doing it doesn't mean it's an adjacency. And we'll go back to those two examples in a moment. But Look, at the end of the day, the things that determine whether it is an actionable adjacency or one where the fact that you do what you do will allow you to do this other thing better than somebody who only does that at scale. There are a whole series of factors that will determine that. All the greatest franchises didn't start out at what, as whatever they are now. They usually find a very narrow niche, dominate it, and then move out. Sometimes, yes, in the analog world, that was significantly geographic, which is not the nature of niches in the digital world. So that's the Walmart story, right? You own Arkansas, then you own the Southeast, and you just keep, it's like ringworm. You just keep building it out. But even before the internet, look at something like Bloomberg, right? They owned a handful of fixed income really deep data around fixed income. And then they moved out and they moved out and they moved out and they moved out. And it's based on both the extent to which your capabilities allow you to do the functions on that next ring out better than others. And a question of whether or not your customers really do, it's the same decision maker, the integrated product actually is a use case that makes your life better and easier. It's all of those same old questions people have been asking before the digital age. So I don't think it's a whole newfangled problem or newfangled issue. Yes, the adjacencies are not defined as frequently by physical geography as they once were, although in many cases, they still are. In many cases, they still are. Local density really does matter for many things. Just ask. Amazon. It's not one huge <laughs> warehouse that they distribute to the world. It's regional density matters. And in the case of AWS, which is an incredible business, that was not an adjacency. Amazon are really smart people. There was a guy who was leaving and uh, he had this idea and they uh, financed him to do it. Obviously, if somebody was going to do that, it would have made much more sense as an adjacency concept. It would have made much more sense for Google, who had way more internal needs and capacity and expertise in that area than Amazon. But Amazon had something that Google doesn't have, which is a relentless focus on serving clients. That is not something Google will ever get a gold star on. There's a reason, there's a reason why when they finally decided, hey, well, geez, maybe we should be in this. At the same time as Microsoft, essentially, they gave Amazon a multi-year head start. And then the two of them both started at the same time. And Google's about half the market shares of Microsoft. And that is because, again, Microsoft does have a culture of selling. So there's a bunch of factors that determine the outcomes in these situations. Let's dig into the different planks of the platform delusion. I think that for a lot of people, whether they're academics or not, they kind of jumble all of these things together, right? So they say that everything is now going to be a platform. They say that all platforms involve network externalities and all businesses that are platforms will ultimately be winner take all. And therefore there's a first mover advantage. I mean, these terms that come up all the time, 
they show up also in the startup world, right? So if you're trying Absolutely. to pitch to VCs, you've got to somehow convince them that you've got a platform with network effects and that you're going to be the first mover and therefore you're going to be a winner take all. Can we take these things and break them down one at a time and talk about them separately? And, and then you focus on the fangs. Microsoft was tangentially just talked about in the book. And you point out that a lot of us think, oh, they must all be platforms and they all must be benefiting from network effects. But in fact, that's not really the case. So maybe start with this idea of a platform, right? What is new about it? What is not so new about it? You're in the media space. Newspapers, they've been platforms for a long time, right? So let's start with the basic definition because people throw around the word. I mean, people talk about Netflix being a platform and it just isn't. So let's start with what is the definition of a platform. It's essentially a business whose fundamental value proposition derives not from making something, but from connecting, whether it's individuals, businesses, or otherwise. So an operating system connects developers with users. A social network connects all the people on <laughs> who want to socialize with each other. An e-commerce platform that connects buyers and sellers. Those are platforms. What they are fundamentally getting paid for, the value they are creating is either by creating a connection or enhancing a connection or some combination of those. There are often businesses that have a platform aspect or started as not a platform business and then they built a platform on top of it. Amazon is a perfect example of that. When Amazon started, it was a friggin' retailer right? It was not any more of a platform than Macy's is, right? They buy shit, they put it in their warehouses, and then they sell it. Yes, if more people come there, it's better for the business and you can invest more and you can do stuff. But that's just regular scale. That is not a platform business and that is not network effects. Then almost 10 years after they started, they tried a bunch of things that failed, but they ultimately created the marketplace. And the marketplace that they layer on top and what they did that was quite innovative was not have them in two hermetically sealed spots. But when you go to the web page for a particular product, you can buy it from them in their non-platform regular old retail model. Or you can check out any number of other purveyors who they manage on their marketplace. So platform business is in the connection business. So let's go to Netflix. So why isn't Netflix a platform business? Netflix is like what Amazon used to be and what Macy's is like. They buy shit and they make shit and they sell it in a subscription. It's digital, but it's not a platform. YouTube is a platform. YouTube is in the business whose value creation is the connecting of mm -hmm. content creators and viewers and advertisers. That's their value proposition. Okay. Netflix, no. Netflix makes content, licenses content, and then tries to sell it to you in a subscription. That's not a platform business. That's just a regular old. Now, it doesn't mean it, it can't be a good business. It's just not a platform. And focus on whether it's a platform or not itself is a little bit misguided because it's in pursuit of this notion that, oh, once it is a platform, it must be winner take all and everybody else is dead. And one of the funny things, I mean, the fundamental 
conventional wisdom that I am attacking in the platform delusion around this narrative, there are two flavors of it, which are mutually inconsistent, but which are often held simultaneously by the same people. So the one version of it is that we are destined to be dominated by a handful of mega platform businesses. It sort of takes a piece of the concept you were talking about where all of these things, there are no lines between things. It's going to be a handful of the huge platform businesses that rule the world. This is the position also of the new generation of antitrust people, right? The new Brandeisians, they're thinking in terms of the new trusts, but these, tr these trusts aren't, it's not just like the oil trust and the, and the steel trust. It's like the everything trusts. That's true. And in fact, precisely because of that slightly odd view of the world in a non-particularly digital context, they are going after with extraordinary public relentlessness, the large private equity firms on the theory that even though these businesses, I mean, it's not like the same private equity firm is buying a bunch of competing businesses. They're not, they're just buying a lot of, a lot of stuff. KKR, Blackstone, sure. They're really big. And so they don't like big. So there's one view of the platform delusion, which is these platforms are going to take over the world and there's only going to be a handful of them. But the other version is invest in any platform business. It's going to be a winner because it's a platform. Now it can't both be true that only there's only five survivors or whatever the number is, and that competition is dead and these guys are going to own the world and the view that. This is the best time ever to be an entrepreneur because really all you got to do is come up with some platform model and you're a winner. And neither of those things are true. There are a whole series of factors that will drive whether a particular platform business is going to be successful or not. And what do you know, Greg, it goes back to the fundamental issues of competitive advantage and how strong the advantages are and the base advantage that, that every great franchise has is scale. And one of the funny things that you see in a lot of the literature is this idea that there's kind of a fight between old scale, which is, you know, analogs, boring analog scale, which is all about having a lot of fixed costs. And if you're the biggest, obviously you can spread the fixed costs over more. And so you're cheaper and so you're better off, but that's boring. Network effects, which is also about scale has nothing to do with costs. It has to do with revenue. It has to do with the fact that every new customer you get makes the actual product better, right? If you're on a social network. Every new person who joins make, I mean, this is not a right. new concept. Obviously this was true with the phone system a hundred years ago, but that's the concept. But the way it's set up now is you see otherwise intelligent people debating which one is better as if that's like a relevant question. What should be relevant is something, a good business. And the reality is if you've got a network effects business that has no significant fixed cost requirements and also has no real mechanism to have customer captivity, you're going to have a real shitty business because the break-even 
volumes that you'll need in order to have a sustainable business are going to be extremely low because there are no significant fixed costs. And the incentive to basically give it away to get customers, since there's so little captivity, is going to be create a situation where you have absolutely relentless movement from one platform to another. And you're going to have a world with multiple competing platforms, all of whom don't make very much money. So you say focusing on, oh, I, I want network effects and, you know, I want it to be an asset light model. The higher the fixed costs, the higher the break-even market shares. <laughs> you want to have high break-even market shares. Low break-even market shares mean lots of competition. And lots of competition is not good for investors. I like how every business is trying to portray itself as a platform business. You mentioned like sweet greens in the book as a, you know, platform for salads or something. Again, think about that exactly like Netflix, right? That is, it's not that in both cases, they're a fabulous product. My friggin' daughter must eat its sweet greens a half a dozen times. Uh, I'm not saying it's not a great product, but it's not a platform. It's a store. It's a fast food restaurant any more than Netflix is a platform. God bless the SEC because they did call it a food platform when they were raising money and they had a they had the help of a, a Harvard a Business School professor giving them credibility for the nonsensical notion. But when they did file to go public, the SEC, uh, when you I actually <laughs> went to get the documents because I was curious, it's in all of their documents for their private raises. It's a food platform for, uh, from page one. But mm -hmm. yeah, the SEC said, no, you can't, it's not, that's a great, that's a great marketing term, but you're not putting that in an in, in S1 to go public. Now, the other example though is, which I think in some ways is more insidious, is where it is a platform. But that doesn't tell you very much about the business. But they want to use that word because they think they'll get a couple of extra multiple turns. Again, to your point earlier, platforms, although only in uh, a little after 2000 did it become de rigueur to talk about platforms. There, there's a Nobel Prize winning economist named Jean Tirol from Toulouse in France, where all the best economists in France hang out. He wrote an article about platforms and from there it went to the moon. But if you read the article, mm -hmm. the majority of the examples are pre-internet examples, whether it's gaming platforms, credit cards, or any kind of middleman business. A real estate broker, what is a real estate broker? Somebody who's trying to create value by connecting buyers and sellers. That being a real estate brokerage, guess what? That's a platform. There was a business that's a perfect, actually, it's a very good real estate brokerage called Compass, which is, you know, a bit tech enabled, but that doesn't change its platformedness. I mean, even if you weren't tech enabled, you're still a platform if you're a real estate broker. Every middleman business is a platform business. But when they went public, the SEC appropriately let them use the word platform because it is a platform, just like your local real estate brokerage is a platform. But they used the word, I believe, something around 300 times in its own business description. And, you know, I don't think that really <laughs> informed the investing public a lot about whether Compass is a good business or a bad business. So some platforms benefit from network effects. Others 
just simply benefit from scale. So if you look at a newspaper, it's not like if I start reading, it's going to somehow enhance your enjoyment of the newspaper, but it will make the newspaper more attractive to more advertisers. So in the old newspaper market, there are these economies of scale, and and so you lead to monopolies, right? That's right. But again, newspapers are a perfect example of a fabulous business. They were. And what made them fabulous actually is that they did have both huge scale economies so that if you were a mid-sized market with a hundred thousand mm-hmm. folks like who lived there, like, you know, Springfield, Illinois, you simply could not support because of the fixed costs required in terms of printing and distribution the, you know, the break-even market share was more than 50%. So it was a natural monopoly, but you're right. The advertising in the paper of the retail advertising that was not a network effects business but you know what was a network effects business the classifieds the classifieds was absolutely a network effects business and it was reinforced by the fact that it had these huge fixed costs if they didn't have huge fixed costs there would be a million local classifieds just popping up you could make money for nothing but you couldn't and they would have one person who smoked a cigarette and would, had no sales force because it was the only place you could go if you wanted to sell your used car, rent an apartment, whatever, that you didn't need a sales force. The margin on that was huge. And look, newspaper journalists in particular love to imagine that in the heyday, what made newspapers a great business was great journalism. I'm sorry to tell you what made this a great business was huge fixed costs and the network effects of the classified businesses, which represented only 20%, 10% of the revenue, but more than half of the profit. A media business that doesn't have any network effects, that was a perfectly good business, that is, is a platform, is just a television networks. Again, it's a platform to connect advertisers and viewers, and they create some content to attract folks to that platform, but it's not a network effects business. You could even argue that movie theaters are a platform business, right? They're a platform to connect the film studios with a local audience, but it's not like, a, it's not, a, but it's not a network effects business. You don't have a particularly better experience because more people are at the theater. Well, you emphasize also the importance of customer stickiness, right? So you could, you know, if you're a newspaper, the fixed costs go away and you no longer have a fixed printing press. And Mm -hmm. so anybody could start a newspaper. But if there's a cost associated with prying those customers away from the incumbents, then, you know, you're not going to get off the ground. And customer stickiness seems to be super, super critical in all of these businesses. Now, of course, one of the reasons why you wouldn't leave is because, you know, the new business doesn't have anything to offer you. But- Let me backtrack a second because network effects, we talk about them all the time, but in those businesses that you've described, the FANG businesses, I mean, it's really only Facebook that has the sort of classic network effect, right? And when we talk about network effect with Uber versus Airbnb, in a way, they both seem to be on the face, very similar businesses, but you highlight that kind of Uber's business is much more vulnerable to competition than Airbnb's. Why is it easier to pry the customers away from Uber with a, say a competing ride-sharing platform than it would be to pry people away from say Airbnb? So let's just go back to the fangs for a second. Other than Facebook, they didn't, the other ones didn't start with 
network effects as their core source of advantage, but all of them got religion and found it and mm -hmm. incorporated it in the, in the portfolio advantages. Apple, when it started, every damn product had a different operating system, right? Mm -hmm. They got the joke <laughs> that a single operating system is a fabulous network effects business. And between the app store and the rest of it, it's definitely an, a network effects business. Now we talked about the fact that Amazon in the marketplace is now a network effects business. And even Google, certainly in their ad network, their advertising network business has network effects, but it's much more primarily a big fixed cost advantage. But going to the fundamental question of stickiness, and stickiness is critical because if you have scale without stickiness, somebody is going to come along and try to steal all of your customers. And that was true in the analog tr world, and it's definitely true in the digital world. And frankly, in the digital world, just because it's alternatives at this point, it's almost glib to say, but it is true. Alternatives are a click away. In the analog world, it was a lot more complicated to search out and find alternatives. So stickiness is the Achilles heel in digital realms. There is, however, a countervailing characteristic, which is the data, right? That is in the digital world, you're able to use the data in ways to try to make up for the facility with which customers can now switch by offering those customers more information and to customize the product in a way to hold onto them, despite the fact that it's easier to move on. But one of the key things that will determine whether or not how valuable that data is, frankly, how complex and how valuable that data is, how complex the product is. If you have lots of different characteristics that matter, then having a very deep pool of users and data becomes wildly valuable. So to your example that you were highlighting of Airbnb, versus Uber in Airbnb, if you're going to, New if you're coming to New York, you want to stay someplace, you care about the view from your room, the neighborhood with the amenities, huge number of factors. And if you know the neighborhood you're going to stay in every incremental unit that gets put on the platform is incrementally valuable to you. So the more, the better that, and that data becomes much more valuable and looking at a platform that has many more options also makes it more likely that you will transact because you're not worried that you haven't gotten everything. So you're not going to have to jump around to a bunch of different platforms. Contrast that with Uber. What do you really care about in the case of Uber? And remember, this is a two-sided platform. So think about this both from the rider, but also the driver perspective. All the rider cares about is how much does it cost and how fast is the car going to get there? Now, if there are enough cars on the platform that you can get to get to you within three, four minutes, having additional drivers on the platform is not incrementally valuable to you. And in fact, if there are so many damn cars <laughs> that they'll be there in 30 seconds and it'll take you five minutes to get down from the elevator on the 34th floor, it's actually a negative. And 
look at the drivers. They just want to have a fare. <laughs> they just want to have a fare. So if you, when you drive in these, you see they've got multiple, all of the different platforms up there. That's what they call multi-homing. So there's no, because it's so simple, if it were a much more complicated choice and there were much more complicated factors, you would not see that. So one business is going to have a way higher margins than the other business. And so Uber and Lyft are basically reduced to each week bribing drivers mm -hmm. to preference their platform rather than somebody else. Who benefits from that? The drivers do, but not the shareholders of Uber or Lyft. So it seems like Uber is a business that's actually kind of like the newspapers in the sense that if you have a relatively small market that can only support a certain number of drivers, then you're going to have a natural monopoly. That's but when right. you have a larger market, nobody's going to pick the one that gives you a car in two minutes over four minutes. Like once you hit certain threshold of four minutes, then you know you're you don't really care at that point, right? That's right. Although the one thing I will say that actually, ironically, I think will make these businesses a, a little better than they otherwise would be is the overwhelming regulatory burden that the uh, cab companies and others are putting on them, which increases their fixed costs. So you'd think in New York City, you should be able to support three or four of these, but it is so expensive to deal with all of that, that essentially it's just the two. So that actually, you think, oh, it's terrible. And in fact, you frequently see incumbents saying, oh, this is, I hate government, you know, and government regulation. But secretly they're saying, keep it coming because I'm the only one who can afford it. That's like GDPR. Exactly. GDPR is a perfect example of this. Or the sudden concern with people's privacy and cookies by Google and Facebook which has nothing to do with their concern about privacy, but wanting to have their walled gardens be relatively more valuable than any of the other alternatives that are out there. Isn't there just a bit of, on the platform side, a push and a pull where everybody's trying to disintermediate platforms. So you discuss the travel business in some detail, and I'm fascinated by that because if I'm United Airlines, okay, you got to work through travel agents, you got to work through GDSs, you got to work through, you know, the online travel agents and so forth. But if I can get the customer to come to my United app and interact with me directly, then that's far better. And presumably there's other cases where there's, a, I think it was, I forget which company it was, they tried to get into the business of matching housekeepers with homeowners and they would match them the first time. And then, you know, that was it. Afterwards, they disintermediate the platform. And then even the news media, right? The news media, New York Times, they don't want you reading the New York Times in your browser and they would rather you not read it through your Facebook newsfeed. They want you to go to the New York Times app. So isn't there sort of a, a limit to the extent to which the platforms can operate if some of the folks on the platform become sufficiently large, they can just sort of detach themselves and remove themselves yes. from the platform? That's true. The number, and in the case of the airlines, they don't really pay much anyway, but they do make it as attractive as possible for you to go there. And the percentage of people who go directly is way, way higher than it was back in the day when American Airlines had hundreds of local ticket offices for the exact same reason. They wanted to disintermediate the travel agents. This isn't a new concept. You don't want to have to pay somebody a quarter of your price. And the way you do it now is by offering special deals online, by 
significantly restricting the ability of anybody to, to sell, even in packages, at a lower price than you're offering online. But I would say, in general, people forget that the biggest travel company is not Expedia and it's not booking. It's Google, because that's where you go. That's the first place most people go. And even companies that have fabulous network effects, like TripAdvisor. TripAdvisor is a obviously a, a great network effects business, right? People want to put their reviews at places where people go to see reviews and vice versa, and advertisers come and all of that. But where are they on the, in the ecosystem? They are stuck between, on the one hand, who they have to rely on for their traffic, and Expedia and Booking, on the other hand. So you're, they're squeezed in between there, and that's not going to leave you very much, because Expedia and Booking have collected a huge amount of inventory. Because again, for the re same reason that Airbnb is a good business and Uber isn't, they've collected a huge amount of inventory, not just the big chains. And in the US, the big chains represent a lot more of the total inventory than in most of the rest of the world. But most of the rest of the world is still a fair amount of independence out there. And somebody who's looking to go to a city wants to have a comprehensive view. I'm sorry, yes, I want to get my Marriott Bonvoy points and maybe I will go directly to the site, but I want to see what my <laughs> options are. And there's a significant fixed cost involved in collecting and aggregating that. And there are really only two people who are able to do that, which gives them both big fixed cost scale advantage and also there's a complicated, which I won't spend time on, network effect that comes with it. That's a function of the way that they get paid. And there are a couple of different models. One model where they actually buy the inventory, and there's another model where they're essentially a marketplace. But it's essentially a hybrid for all of them. So there are real network effects. There are significant fixed costs, and there are really only two of them. And at the end of the day, TripAdvisor relies on them on the one end, and they need Google for the traffic on the other end. And what that leaves them in the middle is not that much, which is why after all of these years, if you go down the history of TripAdvisor, it's the Google of travel, it's this, it's that, it's only a few billion dollars still. And the structural challenge of being stuck between two people who are effectively natural monopoly or oligopoly, you're not gonna have a lot left for yourself no matter how great your network effects are. Well, in the travel realm, you did tell the story about booking versus Expedia. And, you know, booking uses an agency model and, you know, Expedia was using this merchant model. And it seems like the agency model is much more of what we would describe as a platform. And the merchant model is much more like what we would describe as just selling inventory that you procure from suppliers. And the booking success has been much greater. So isn't that sort of an argument in favor of the platform? Both of them are a hybrid. But the reason it was so critical to booking success actually is that this was one of those very rare businesses where first mover advantage was real. The first mover advantage is not a real competitive advantage. What the advantage is, is scale. And the question is, 
when does going first facilitate scale? That is the question. And the answer is rarely. Because when you go first, the market hasn't been defined, the technology is in flux, you're not able to get scale because people are still trying to figure out what they want. And if the technology is still in flux, they are keeping their options open. So it usually has to be the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth iteration. You need to, what you're doing nine out of 10 times, or if not more, is free R&D for the person who is going to get scale, who is going to make the investment at the time when both the structure of the market and the structure of technology have stabilized enough so that if you make a big push, you're able to get scale. In the case of booking versus Expedia, that was a market that was pretty well defined, right? eBay is another example, right? It was one of the first killer apps where they went first and it was so intuitive. Everybody got the joke. They were able to go first and get scale quickly. That's the exception, not the rule. And what really made the difference between whether they did the platform model and the merchant model was about how quickly they could sign up people. And also in places outside of the US, there just wasn't a culture because on the merchant model, you had to actually give your credit card at the time you booked. And people were not willing to do that outside of the US. That was very countercultural. And as a result, booking was able to sign up much more quickly, many, many more around the world, many, many more merchants and, and innkeepers and regional hotel chains and otherwise because of that. So it was more about that model in that industry facilitating being able to gain relative scale quickly, more so than whether at the end of the day, one is better than the other. The reality is in a hot market, the merchant model is better because you bought a bunch of inventory cheap and you can sell it at a huge profit. And in a down market, you'd rather be an agency model so you don't have a bunch of inventory on your balance mm -hmm. sheet. So, I mean, one isn't better than the other, but in the context of the history of the fight between the two of them, the reason why booking one was that the agency model allowed them to scale much more quickly in the very markets that are the most fragmented where they're able to take more of the value for themselves. Now, I want to get back to this idea of data, because I do think that we can analyze the value of data as a core resource using the traditional tools of economies of scale and scope. If you believe that machine learning benefits from more data, both more rows, more columns, right? Understanding more individuals and then more features of those individuals then the more data you have that's proprietary, that was costly to acquire, then the bigger the barrier to entry you have against somebody who's going to try and come into your space. I mean, you know, I think about Amazon, you know, I've been buying from Amazon since mid nineties, the earliest Amazon customers out there. And I love the fact that it's one day and so forth. But even when it comes to say books for this podcast, I mean, I'll probably more often just buy it from Amazon than get a free copy from the publisher simply because I, I want Amazon to kind of know what I'm buying, right? I want them to add this to their 
collection of data about me so that I can get better recommendations going forward. If I start cheating on Amazon and you know going elsewhere, the recommendations are going to suffer. So in a way, the customer stickiness is built on their ability to provide me with customized service, but their ability to provide me with customized service is a function of my continuing to contribute this data. And of course, it's not just my data, but it's kind of everybody else's data. So there's economies of scale and there's also kind of economies of scope because, you know, knowing what books I buy also might say something about what music I'm interested in or what films I'm interested in. So to what extent is the pursuit of proprietary data streams really at the heart of business strategy today? The answer is, uh, it is, but it varies directly based on the use case. So at the highest level, in the example you gave, if Amazon keeps getting incrementally better at providing its service to you every time you buy something from them, and that continues on ad infinitum, then that is a very powerful use case. Well, it's like Google. You talk about how the search results for me get better and better because of the 20 years of history of my searches, right? I would actually say that search is, in fact, such a use case. That is, it's not network effects. It's not because I learned, you know, it knows what Greg likes, so it's going to be smarter about advising Jonathan. No, it knows what Jonathan clicks on, buys, does. And every time I do it, something incremental, it gets smarter and better about what it serves up to me. And that doesn't stop. It keeps going on forever. That is an unusual case. Most other cases are either, once you have a certain level of data, you have really all you need <laughs> for that to provide the best possible service. And finding out more about you is interesting, maybe for, you know, for, for <laughs> prurient reasons or otherwise, but it doesn't really change. And then there are other cases, which are most cases, which are in between, which is the first bit is hugely valuable. And then incrementally, it's not so much. Depending on which bucket you're in, frankly, if it's the type that as long as you have a certain level of data, you're going to be able to be at, on a level playing field with, that, uh, uh, with everybody else, well, the fact that you're in a digital environment means that your competitors are going to be able to catch up relatively quickly. The fact that you go fast down the learning curve in a digital, faster down the learning curve in a digital environment, analog environment, is great for you going down the learning curve. But guess what? It's great for your competitor because they can follow you just as fast. And it's only a structural advantage if you keep being able to stay ahead because the nature of that use case allows that to be meaningful differentiator beyond a certain level. And in use cases, though, where it frankly is not that valuable, like Uber and Lyft, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, I, I listened to the, the folks at Uber and Lyft talk about, oh my gosh, we do this really complicated stuff. You know what? Taxis knew where to be. <laughs> before there was even an internet, right? The fact that they know that I go from my home to my office, uh, you know, and on Friday I go to the movies, I mean, does that really make a big difference? No. Conversely, uh, again, comparing it to Airbnb, knowing what 
kinds of things I might want to buy when I'm staying in the seventh arrondissement in Paris, where I'd like to go. Those are all hugely valuable, both in terms of being able to sell advertising, but also in terms of making my experience of staying there more satisfying. Right. Mm -hmm. So it really varies dramatically by use case as to whether or not it will be a meaningful part of that portfolio of advantages that makes a particular franchise really hard to uh, uh, combat. Well, look, I mean, you have a background in investment banking. And when you read this book, in some ways, it's helping you to think about investing better, right? And this is true whether you're investing in publicly traded companies or whether you're a venture capitalist. I always think of them as similar types of questions. I mean, you're asking about sustainability. You're asking about barriers to imitation. You know, you're asking about competitive advantages and so forth, whether you're a VC or whether you're a investment analyst. And I do wish that I'd read this book, uh, maybe you were to come out a little bit earlier before the last couple months, that the events in the stock market and so forth. But you do point out that there are opportunities, even though say venture capital world is just inundated with cash and there's a lot of dumb money there. You highlight that there are these areas of specialization, particularly in kind of enterprise software, where you can find some vertical and carve out a niche where you can sustain advantage. So can you talk just a bit about that? Like where, where do you think those opportunities are? Look, finding specialized vertical areas, as we talked about earlier, why is that valuable? It's not just about you can do AI better when you get data in a vertical. It's easier to develop relative scale. It's easier to create a network where you have a meaningful relative share. When it is a vertical where the different nodes in your network have the commonality of that vertical, the chances that you're gonna be able to create a proposition uh, that is sticky and that has some customer captivity is much higher in a specialized vertical. Right. You're going to be able to develop use cases that uh, bring habit where you're able to create incremental value to the participants just by virtue of being on the network of other participants within a vertical rather than, you know, a generalized vertical. And indeed, the data is likely to be much, much more valuable. So to me, where you want to start. And one of the things when I talk about the platform delusion, we, we talked about what I mean generally by it, but it's also referencing the fact that people use a bunch of trigger words to make you think, oh, oh, is, there's a big TAM uh, or uh, there's a bunch of disruption or whatever to, to make you think, well, that you don't need to ask any more questions, you're done. Well, the reality is, yes, venture capitalists want a big TAM because that's the business that they're in. That is, it, it, it go big or go home, right? So if, the, if it's not a big enough addressable market, they're not going to play. But that's not how you should think about it. You should think about how do I get to create a sustainable business and then grow into it? Starting with a big TAM, the reality is, as we talked about before, the bigger the TAM, the lower the break-even market share. 
you want to start with narrow verticals where break-even market share is high, you want to dominate it, and then you want to move to the next adjacency and do the same thing again. That's how great franchises get built, not by saying, I'm going to take over the world. It's this huge trillion-dollar market, and oh, look at my upside, because I only have 0.01%. Well, <laughs> that just means there are millions of people who have the same market share and are you're not differentiated from, and it's not a good business. So uh, it's just really important to focus on the core proposition, the core customer set, and a real pain point for that customer set that you can serve, that you can super serve in a way that you're able to relatively quickly get a significant share and don't freak out about, oh, it's not that big a market. Because once you have that, you're going to be able to make real money and you're going to be able to look around you and see what is the next concentric circle that I can build. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be able to keep doing that. And that's the right way to build great, sustainable franchises in the digital world. Not by focusing on words like, you know, AI and platform and disruption and whatever. It's the same basic principles as we started this conversation. The same basic principles applied to a very different, I won't say industry structure, ecosystem. Well, this actually sounds a lot like what I'm hearing from some of the more sophisticated VCs that I know. It's very much in line with what they're saying. But last question, in the end of the book, you talk about how when you're in business school, it's, I think, probably around similar to kind of when I was in school, you know, most people wanted to invest in banking, consulting, whatever. Now your students, very few of them go that route. And most of them are going into startups, right? They're going into early stage companies. A lot of them are becoming founders. Do you think that this is a misallocation of our resources? Do you think that we're sending people down the wrong road or do you think that this kind of makes sense given the level of, of kind of uncertainty as you said in the 80s into the 90s half of graduates of the top business schools went to consulting and banking that was too much that's not because those are evil professions <laughs> it's because there is no way that half of these students should be in sales jobs, right? I mean, in banking and, and consulting are basically service jobs, and service jobs are all about sales. And most people are not built for sales. And the reason they did it was it was an era when having spent your whole life impressing your family and your friends by getting into the best schools, getting very good grades, and always checking whatever box indicated that you were in the top um, getting out of business school the next box to check was either McKinsey or Goldman Sachs and so you went there even though you didn't really want to do that and that was not good for society and it wasn't good for you but at least at Goldman Sachs and McKinsey you got some good training and you also got exposure to a wide variety of functions and businesses and industries so that you could then, when you realized that you were being foolish, 
you could then go do something that you did love. My issue with the fact that at many of the top business schools, something like half are either starting their own business or going to, you know, a, a company that's only been started in the last few years that, I mean, you can, you can cut this, these numbers different by how many employees, how long the business has been around. But the point is, half of them are going to early stage companies, which by definition will fail. <laughs> Most of them. That's just the nature of the beast. It's not a sure thing out there. That's been true. That's been true from time immemorial. Even the top venture firms, it's a minority of the ones they invest in that thrive. And so I just don't believe, obviously, some number of people really came out of the womb wanting to go to Goldman Sachs or McKinsey. And those people, God bless them, they should do that. And similarly, there are real entrepreneurs. There are people who you and I know, and from a young age, they were thinking about this, okay? It ain't half the people at these business schools, right? It's a fraction of them. And the problem is that unlike in the case of banking and consulting, when those folks realize that it ain't for them, they're probably gonna realize <laughs> around the time the business fails, <laughs> they haven't learned anything, they're going to be in a bad place. Um, so I don't think it's what we're teaching. I think it is the fact that the insecurities of even the best and the brightest and the desire to do what at any moment in our culture is signified as in this for that time of success that I just feel like the downside in terms of their productive capacities and long-term happiness, I think is greater because banking and consulting gives you a pretty soft landing and a bunch of tools to allow you to pivot in a way that working at, you know, a harebrained startup that fails in 18 months, it doesn't. Well, Jonathan, this book, Platform Delusion, it's super informative. I really enjoyed it. Lots of case studies of big tech companies, but also some interesting case studies in other domains, such as advertising, travel, and software. So check this out. Also check out the other books, right? Accidental Investment Banker, which I think you can still get on Amazon, Class Clowns, and Curse of the Mogul. Hope to chat again soon. Thanks, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.